the Bowtie and Blondie podcast. Yay! Hello everyone, welcome back to the Bowtie and the Blondie podcast. It's been a couple of weeks since we recorded our last one and that's kind of how it's going to be from now on. Every every couple of weeks we're going to do an episode. Welcome back to my co-host, Katie Bax. Hello! How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Busy, busy and enjoying work and life and things. It's great. Um, so yeah, yeah, all well. What have you been up to? Uh, just trying to get through to half term. <laughs> it's been a long term, uh, but very good one, uh, really. And yeah, quite positive. Trying to build up all of my students again after coming back after a long disrupted year. Uh, so yeah. yeah, really focused on work this week. Well, two weeks. Yeah, there's still a fair bit of disruption out there, but it's definitely a lot better than it has been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I've been doing um, delivering training to uh, mostly primary teachers the last couple of weeks which has been great sort of showing them how to be better primary science teachers really and and sort of looking at sort of cognitive science and and um different types of knowledge and things and making practical work purposeful so so yeah it's been it's been really good it's not their um strong point for quite a few primary teachers is it so i bet they're very grateful for the training in science really yeah they seem to really they seem to really like it and it's great they really take it on board they they work so so hard like i i didn't appreciate it before but really they they really want to do a good job they they're really passionate about it which is great to see um right then so um episode two of season two uh standard things this week guys so we've got our science articles we've got our darwin awards we've got this we've got lame science jokes and facts of the week uh, so lots of fun things for you guys to listen to. So shall we get started? Yeah. Right. Okay. So as always, let's start with um, an article. So my first article this week is a really interesting one. And I hope we haven't come up with the same ones because we haven't actually talked about what no. we we're going to find. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Um, so this one is uh, a really interesting story about scientists have been doing some research on um, looking at how stress during a life during a lifetime can be passed on to your children through their genes, and if the stress is strong enough, it can even be passed on to the grandchildren. So, what the biologists at University of Iowa in America um, subjected roundworm mothers to heat stress, and what they found was this this heat stress modified their genes and then those modified genes were then passed on to their children who who then had issues around stress they were more prone to certain things this has actually also been found in humans as well so if i just sort of read a bit of the articles the researchers um in the department of biology and the aging mind looked at um, how a mother roundworm reacts when she senses danger, such as change in temperature, which can be harmful or fatal. So in the study published, the, bi- the biologists discovered that the mother roundworm releases serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter, when she senses danger. The serotonin travels from her central nervous system to warn the unfertilized eggs, um, where this warning is then stored, so to speak, in, 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 in the genes and passed on to offspring after conception. 
And this has actually been found in human beings as well. Studies showing that um, women affected by famine in the Netherlands in 1944 to 1945, known as the Dutch Hunger Winter, gave birth to children who were influenced by that episode as adults. They had much higher rates of obesity, diabetes and schizophrenia, which is really, really odd. Um, So, yeah, they... I mean, the, the article goes into really heavy uh, biology and talk about HSF1 genes, things which we're not going to get into here, but they 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 really found some interesting things. So the mo- one of the most remarkable things, is if the mother was spo- supposed to stress for a very short period of time, only the next generation um, had this kind of, you know, inverted commas, memory of, of that event. But if the stress was... Um, intense enough and for a longer period of time then the grandchildren of that uh, round one retain that memory that maternal stress is recorded in two continuous populations generations which is which is really really interesting um and yeah i, I just thought that was kind of cool because i was actually working on um something this week uh, writing a, a curriculum and it was kind of darwinism versus lamarckism which you know, we all teach and lamarck was kind of saying that you know evolution happens by acquiring characteristics during our lifetime getting passed on to children and then darwin came along with his, his inherited characteristics you know, mutations in the dna and things like that and i just kind of feel that although this is not you know a, a backup for lamarckism it's definitely something different to our standard idea of, of how things get inherited and passed on like experiences during one's lifetime can affect the offspring whereas before we can't kind of always yep. there's only mutations in in the genetic code that occurred during mitosis uh, during meiosis that led to natural selection variation but actually it seems that there's more to it there's actually things that can happen in a lifetime that can have an impact. And it doesn't seem like it's positive impact. This isn't a good thing. Some sort of things being selected for, you know, being more obese, diabetes and schizophrenic is probably not going to be successful in a population. But, you know, this is is really, I just found it really, really interesting. I'll tell you what, I'm glad that this isn't a a filmed, a a visual one, because the look on my face must be an absolute picture because, yeah, that's, that's amazing. That is mind blowing. Um, so hormones of the mother can affect their grandchildren. That's yeah, that's yeah. So, so yeah, neuro, neurotransmitters affect um, unfertilized eggs in 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 the in the mother, and that is basically stored within that that egg, and then it expresses itself when that egg is then fertilized and develops into a, a new organism and if the stress is strong enough can be passed on to the next generation as well so finding stress-free lives i think is is the is the message this because you're going to pass that stress on to your onto your children um so yeah the paper was published online actually um, on october 13th so literally yesterday very recent i like it yeah, really recent and obviously that's going to have a lot more work uh done in it um done on that which hopefully should lead to more sorts of in, in sort of diagnosis and, and, uh, and treatment of, of diseases fascinating i love it what, what you got for us 
Right, so uh, hopefully this article won't really come as a huge surprise to anyone, uh, but the University of East Anglia have released some new research into the benefits of children eating fruits and vegetables. So sorry, Alfie, but you're probably not going to like this one if you're listening. Uh, the team of scientists took data from uh, about 9,000, I think it was, children in 50-odd schools. So it's not a bad sample set. It's a pretty good size. Mm -hmm. And they found that the types of breakfast and lunch that the children ate, both at primary and secondary school, had a significant association with their mental well-being. Uh, this is the first study of its kind in the UK. I cannot believe that this has not been studied before in the UK. So essentially, it found that the students who consumed uh, five or more portions of fruits and vegetables a day had the highest scores for mental well-being, which is amazing. So me working with young people, uh, I have noticed a decline in students' mental well-being, especially over the past two-ish years. Uh, and many studies have identified the link between mental well-being in teenagers and long-term mental health issues as adults. I think we've discussed that before on an earlier episode, haven't we? I think. So anyway, uh, Young people, I'm sure everyone knows, that have got so many knocks to their mental well-being at the moment and their love and their connection with social media definitely does not help that, but maybe their diet can have a positive effect. So the study involved students uh, self-reporting their food choices over a series of weeks, I believe it was, no, sorry, a series of months, and then completing age-related tests of their well-being that covered things like cheerfulness, their relaxation, and having good interpersonal relationships, uh, something that social media also has a negative opinion on. Mm. Uh, but, uh, the data said, this is quite shocking, I think, that a quarter of secondary school pupils and 28% of primary students ate the recommended five a day, which is good, but just under one in 10 said that they didn't eat any at all. Shocking. Uh, although even more shocking, uh, one in five secondary school students and one in 10 primary school students didn't eat breakfast at all. And of those, more than one in 10 secondary students didn't eat lunch either. So taking into account other factors uh, that can affect mental well-being, like uh, adverse children experiences, uh, the data showed that there was a clear, very clear link between good diets and positive well-being. And that poor diet actually seemed to have more of a negative effect on well-being than say witnessing regular arguments at home. I thought that was an interesting thing. Mm. Uh, another interesting point to me anyway, because I see this so often at school, students who drank an energy drink for breakfast instead of, uh, instead of eating breakfast scored even lower on their mental well-being quizzes than a student who ate or drank nothing at all. So those energy drinks are most certainly having a negative effect on mental well-being i have got no idea why, why they are on the market in my opinion they should be banned uh but that is my personal opinion <laughs> uh so yeah in a world with so many different factors having a negative effect on our lovely young people it's kind of good to think that actually there's an easy way that we can manipulate this and have a good impact uh it's hoped that the result results of the study will push schools to have uh, a change in their policy and ensure that there's good nutrition available to students both during and before the school day because a happy student is more learning right yeah absolutely i mean like you said right at the beginning it, it kind of comes across as just like well yeah we knew that but it 
I think we knew it because it's just kind of like ingrained in our, our psyche that fruit and vegetables and eating healthy and eating well is good for you. Hmm. But so probably no one ever thought to do a study on it because everyone kind of just kind of knew it. But actually, I think it was it's really valuable having some data behind it to to say yeah. to people, look, this is a big deal. If you and we've seen it, you know, you you see it still, and and we've seen it for years. You know, children who don't eat breakfast come to school and they're grumpy and and and, and they get themselves in trouble and they their mental health suffers, and and. I mean, I have to admit, my my son, I can't get him to eat any fruit and vegetables at all. But then he has complex medical issues. But I would love to get him to eat some stuff. And I, you know, I've just, I, I've, we've had dietitians involved. Just cannot get him to eat anything. But I think, I think some schools get it really right, don't they? They have breakfast clubs which have lots of you know bananas and, and fruits and things. But I think it's about like teaching the children this stuff, you know, yeah. rather than just saying it and they think it's just all oh, teachers and parents being moany old teachers and parents about fruits and vegetables, showing them the evidence and showing them the data in school to say that this is what it shows. This is what's going to happen. This is what happens when you have an energy drink for breakfast, a cascade of disasters in, in <laughs> that it has no benefits to you whatsoever. And yeah. I totally agree they should be banned. I don't understand how they're, how, like I said, how they're on the market is crazy. Uh, the damage they do to, to children and, and their ability to function well at school. Mm. So yeah, fruits so and veg, not just good for the body, but good for the mind as well. Oh, absolutely fantastic really great article katie thank you so right um next up oh it's the darwin awards we have the darwin awards So, quick recap, Darwin Awards, if you didn't catch episode one of season two, this is a new feature for this season. It's where people who have done things that are pretty stupid, really, and are not like haven't survived to pass their genes on to the next generation, which is what evolution is all about. And hence name the Darwin Awards, because well, they, they're not going to uh, survive. So we've got two examples of uh, the Darwin Awards this time. So this one, both of these are pretty kind of gruesome, but not too bad. So um, America and their love of guns, they all, they all love their guns. And back in 2000, there was a teenager in Texas who tried to play uh, an even more dangerous version of Russian roulette. So for those of you who don't know, Russian roulette is a game that crazy people play where they put a bullet into a revolver gun and uh, the rest of the chambers are empty. So six chambers, they put a bullet in one, they spin it, and then they basically pull the trigger and basically one in six chance of, of dying. Um, that's not my idea of a game, really. It's crazy. But um, this young man um, in 2000 in Texas, uh, and I'm not surprised it's Texas, to be perfectly honest, um, decided that he was going to put the one single bullet into a semi-automatic pistol. Now, in a semi-automatic pistol, the bullets are instantly moved up to 
one's chamber no matter where you put them <laughs> so it increased the odds from one in six to 100 <laughs> percent unfortunately that young man died <laughs> so yeah darwin not be around at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh right okay and this one's no no better um although obviously wasn't aware of the risk when they did this compared to the putting a gun to your head uh, lava lamps. I mean, lava lamps are cool. Um, you know, probably not as cool as they were in 1974, but they're still pretty cool. Kids love them. And because they're so cool, uh, a man in all seem to come from America, which is kind of yeah. makes sense. Um, a man bought a lava lamp, <laughs> and he plugged in this lava lamp, and um, this man known as Flip got bored of waiting for the lava to heat up. It's not really lava. I'm not even sure what it is. Some kind of... Wax, hot, isn't it? Yeah, some heavy density liquid, isn't it? But it has to heat up, and then it starts to kind of circle around, circle around in, the, in the chamber, doesn't it? It's like... So he got bored of, of waiting. So what he decided to do, he was going to put... He took the lava lamp, and he put it inside the oven to speed this process up. And unfortunately, it definitely got a lot more interesting because it exploded and imploded of glass into his chest where he promptly bled to death. What goes through people's heads? Don't put lava lamps in the oven. There you go. There's there's your lesson. Don't don't put bullets in uh, an automatic gun and don't put um, lava lamps in the oven. So two definite Darwin Award winners there. They definitely make you think, what were you thinking? Absolutely. Okay, right. Katie, you've got a second article for us this week. Yes, yes, I do. So uh, GCSE biology covers communicable diseases, so diseases that are spread, if you like. Uh, and one of the examples that I need to teach about is malaria. And I have found an article about malaria. So... Uh, we have to teach how malaria can be prevented, for example, use, use of mosquito nets or draining still water that's used for the breeding ground so that they move away from the populated areas, as this is a terrible illness and it is the largest cause of childhood illness and death in Africa, killing uh, 260,000 under fives a year. To put that into context, that is one child every two minutes. It is a huge illness in Africa and other areas as well, but it's mainly in Africa. So uh, malaria is spread by female mosquitoes. It is only spread by female mosquitoes, not the male ones, because only the female ones bite you because they need that extra uh, iron as part of their reproductive cycle. Anyway, I'm digressing a little bit there. Uh, the parasite then enters the bloodstream of the person that the mosquito has bitten and it travels to the liver, it develops there for a little while, and then it re-enters the bloodstream and begins attacking the red blood cells. So not very good, really. You kind of need your red blood cells to carry the oxygen around your body so that you can respire, have energy, and generally carry on living. You definitely do not want a parasite attacking your red blood cells. Anyway, as it is a parasite, it's been very difficult to develop any sort of vaccine because it is so much more complex than viruses or bacteria. But... Thankfully, thank, uh, thank you very much, science and medical people, because you have finally developed and piloted a vaccine for uh, malaria in Ghana, Kenya and Malawi. 
and the World Health Organization are now recommending it for widespread rollout. Hooray! Uh, so teams behind the vaccine have reported a 30% reduction in deadly malaria, uh, and the vaccine has been proved safe with no significant side effects. Some people may be thinking 30%, you know, that's not very much, but 30% when uh, 260-odd thousand young under fives are dying, 30% will be huge. So mm. uh, individual countries could even open it and adopt it as part of their international, sorry, their national uh, malaria control procedures. So that may even result in more tourists. So more money coming into the countries as well. Wouldn't that be a happy side effect of it? More healthy adults growing up in the country and more tourist money from one medical advancement. It's amazing. So this is the first time an effective vaccine has been created for this horrible, deadly disease, and it's hoped to bring an end to the cause of so much pain and suffering. So, yeah, I thought that definitely deserved a shout out on our podcast, because how amazing is medical science nowadays? <laughs> it's, incredible. it's incredible. I mean, I mean, vaccines are all the news at the moment, aren't they, because of mm-hmm. COVID um, and, and, and the incredible way that that vaccine was put together and the different technologies that have been utilised. It's great to hear about vaccines being used in other areas as well. Um, and, and being... malaria that has been, I mean, I've heard about malaria all the while I was growing up, like all of the um, like comic relief and stuff. It always talks about malaria and malaria relief and all of these different medications that people need to take. Mm-hmm. So it's wonderful that there's now a vaccine that can hopefully stop it. <laughs> Yeah, that, that that's that's awesome because yeah, it's a horrible, horrible disease. Okay, right. My second article this week is is from an article written in BBC Focus Science Focus magazine, which is uh, it sort of started this magazine when I was about eleven years old, long many many moons ago, and I subscribed to it for years and years and years and years. I think actually I left all the old copies I had at school in, in my old classroom and they're still in there. So um, right back from like 1991. And um, this article is an extract or the, or written around a book um, called Strange Natures. Um, and it's written by uh, Kent Redford and William Adams. Um, and it's about cloning uh extinct animals which is something i've always been really kind of interested in and whenever whenever, back when i was teaching whenever i would to sort of evolution and cloning and things i would always sort of bring up this type of stuff because it's really exciting stuff and really interesting because there's loads of sci-fi out there about this you obviously the most obvious one is jurassic park uh where you know scientists bring back dinosaurs um and make make a park from them and obviously continue into Jurassic World and things. And this is kind of basically looking at, is this actually possible? Can it really be done? And there have been animals that have gone extinct, that have gone, been cloned and brought back, so de-extinction by cloning. Uh, in 2003, the, they brought back a, a subspecies series of the Iberian ibex when extinct in 2000. But there's a big difference between bringing back animals that only recently went extinct compared to animals that went extinct millions or even tens of thousands of years ago. And the example here is the mammoth. 
So this article is 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 about that. And unfortunately, you can't really clone a mammoth. You can't you can't do it because DNA is incredibly delicate molecule and doesn't last very long at all after death. Even in a really well preserved specimen like the baby mammoth that was that was in the the, the permafrost that they dug out. You know, the DNA is is it's not it's just not good quality. You know, be too too many gaps to to clone it um so it's it's just going to be too degraded so and that also goes for velociraptors and tyrannosaurus and so basically unfortunately jurassic park is just going to have to stay in science fiction for now however there is a way to bring back the mammoth to de-extinct the mammoth and it's basically using technology to re-engineer a closely related extant species, so one that's still around today, to match its extinct relative. So, um, you, so the example they're looking at, and it's using really, really advanced uh, gene editing technology like CRISPR. I think we've talked about CRISPR before, which is um, an incredibly powerful piece of gene editing technology. It's going to revolutionise the world in so many different ways. But what what they've been doing is using the um, DNA of an Asian elephant and attempting one gene at a time to rewrite the genetic code of an Asian elephant, generating increasingly mammoth-like cells. So, and some of the major things they need to get back are this, uh, the mammoth features of controlling hemoglobin, hair growth, fat production. Every time they're doing it, they're doing one of these things. They're working on bringing back one of these things. And then, what, what, in theory, once they finish doing this and they have a synthesized strand of mammoth DNA, and again, brackets for mammoth DNA because it's, it's a re-engineered Asian elephant's DNA to represent a mammoth's DNA, you could insert that into an egg of an Asian elephant, implant it into a host female, and if it was brought to term and born alive, it would have woolly mammoth traits. It wouldn't exactly be a woolly mammoth, not exactly how they were when they were alive some 25,000 years ago. But it would be definitely more like anything, more like a mammoth than we have around today since the last one, the, complete, the very last one died out about 4,000 years ago, but they were very widespread, about 25. So I think that that's, that's really cool because there is actually potential to do that whether we should do that or not that's a i think that's a question for a different day there's sort of moral moral and ethics of it but i mean to do it it's a mammoth un- <laughs> it's a mammoth undertaking <laughs> it's a huge <laughs> it's a huge under- undertaking because there are actually 1.4 million differences between um, mammoth and asian elephant genomes so they're not exactly that closely alike so it's going to be a big, big project, and it's going to keep this team focused for years, just trying to get that genetic strand. And then once they have that that genome, uh, mammoth close to mammoth genome, then they have the decision to make of whether they actually do put it inside an egg and bring it to term. But it's a really exciting project for kind of that kind of area of of, of con- conservation and, and and that kind of should we be bringing back animals that have died out you know they were you know they died out for various reasons some human you know some natural but there are arguments for it you know some some conservationists point out that 
the extinct species could drive ecosystem recovery by restarting lost ecological processes, kind of a, re- a rewilding little process. Um, it's not really that the species is alive that matters, the fact it's what it does and its ecolog- ecological interactions that are important. But I don't know. It, what, what you're bringing back, like like it, there's a there's a there's a great line in in one of the Jurassic Park movies where they talk about the dinosaurs and they, they I think it's uh, Alan Grant says they aren't they weren't dinosaurs they were genetically engineered theme park monsters. So what and, and if this ever came to be, what you would have is you wouldn't really have a true mammoth. You would have some hybrid thing that kind of looks a bit like a mammoth but isn't really a mammoth. So you have to kind of question whether that's something we really want because we wouldn't be reintroducing real mammoths into the wild. We'd be reintroducing these things that never, ever existed before, these hybrids. So it's a really difficult thing. But I think the fact that we now have the ability to do this, we have the technology and CRISPR and other things like that to to do this is is really important. And, and, and there's also sort of laws around it as well. I mean, what would you classify it as? How would a taxonomist classify this hybrid? Where would it fit in the classification system? And what would the laws be about where it would stay? And, and you know, people people would probably try and hunt it, you know, what human beings are like. So there's all sorts of things around it. I just, I just thought it was a really, really cool article. It's very interesting. But yeah, I think it raises more questions than it yeah. gives us answers. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. But, um, you know, we're not going to get a Jurassic Park, that's for sure. But, um, because there aren't really any animals alive that are close relatives of dinosaurs. Obviously, birds are, are the closest we have and chickens and things, but they're not close enough to re-engineer. Not, not yet, anyway. I bet there you're we upset go. about that as well, aren't you? Uh, again, all sorts of questions about whether it's yeah. right to do that. You're not talking about. You're talking there about a, a group of animals that have been extinct for 65 million years, not 4,000. So there's a bit of a difference. Mm. Okay. Ooh, what happened back then? Then. Right, it's time for this week in science, Katie. What have you got? All right, so uh, another new feature for season two. I wanted to look at the what has happened in science history on the week that we have been uh, recording. So on this day, actually on this day, the 14th of October in 1947, the first person flew faster than the speed of sound. Now, I do have a little bit more to this. It's not just that one sentence. So before then, it was always theorised that the speed... Of tra- speed of, uh, traveling at the speed of sound would rip any craft that you were using apart. But in 1947, uh, above Roger Dry Lake in California, the X1 proved that not to be the case. At 40,000 feet, the craft exceeded 662 miles per hour successfully, uh, but the mission was kept a secret until 1948 because, yeah, they wanted to keep the technology a secret. So, yes, that does sound very impressive, and it is very impressive. But to break the sound barrier at ground level, you would need to travel even faster uh, because the speed of sound changes, actually, as you with altitude, because it changes the density of the air particles. And also in this week in history, on the 15th of October in 1997, 
even the speed of sound was broken on uh, on land with the uh, thrust SSC traveling at 763 miles per hour. So two events in history this week. That's amazing. I'm sure they were going to make uh, a, a follow-up to the thrust SSC that it was going to go even faster. It was going to, it was going to break a thousand miles an hour or something on land. I thought I remember hearing something about that, but I didn't have time to research it. Sorry. <laughs> to it, like, did they ever finish it? I don't know. It might be something to look up for next time. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Katie. Name size jokes time. Right then, lame science jokes time. You ready? I'm ready. Okay, right. One tectonic plate bumped into another and said, wow. sorry, my fault. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay, uh, and the second one. Why is the pH of YouTube very stable? Oh, don't know. Because it constantly buffers. <laughs> okay, I, like I like that one. I like that one. <laughs> Very lame, but I like it. Amazing science fact of the week. Okay, Katie, you got your fact of the week for us. Yes, I do. So it is no news to anyone that plants release aromas. That is why flowers smell, of course. But did you know that plants release aromas to alert other plants that they are under attack? Really strange, right? Mm -hmm. But they do. Uh, so plants release chemicals and toxins to deter insects. So when insects bite into the plants, the plant begins to release these toxins and chemicals uh, that either... Uh, attract other insects so that they come along and eat the insect that is eating the plant uh, or it could uh, alter the plant's taste or it could damage the the bug's uh, digestive system or it could even poison them anyway these aromas can then also be detected by other nearby plants that so that they can start also making that chemical makes you rethink the lovely smell of cut grass doesn't it when you realize yeah. that it's actually a smell being released by the grass to say that they are being attacked i'm dying i'm dying <laughs> save me and we're going mm, oh, lovely smell oh delicious <laughs> yeah i think i think there's a massive underappreciation about just how sophisticated plants are out there in the general public i mean definitely they're, they're, they're incredible things brilliant Okay, well, that brings us to the end of another episode of the Bowtie and Blondie podcast. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode. And we look forward to entertaining you in a couple of weeks' time with some more awesome science goodness. Uh, so it's a goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you very much. Okay, guys. See you later. Bye. Service over. Be happy you listened. Bye.